This is the Territory Story Podcast with Peter and the Professor. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there. Welcome to you. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers, but you know that because that's what that bloke just said. That's his job. I'm going to introduce you now to my co-host, the Royalty of Darwin. <laughs> Today, Ooh. Elizabeth Spencer, how are you? It's a little scary. Yeah. Good to see you, Peter. It's been a while. Thanks. I'm fine. Wow. Thank you. Now, I have alluded to this a couple of times on the weekend edition, which I've managed to struggle through over the last month or so. But um, I got hit by this blue cough thing. Wasn't um, COVID or anything like that, but I just, I haven't been able to shake it. And I apologized the first time we missed one of the, the, uh, early in the week podcast, and then I haven't apologized since because I was like, if I never get over this thing, there may never be a midweek podcast again. But here we are, and it's great to see you and talk to you again, Liz. Thank you. It's great to see you. You know, I think it's done you good, Peter. You look, you yeah. look very sort of rosy and hale and hearty now. So I think you are. You fully recovered? I'm actually not. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much, but uh, I, I still have these raging coughing fits from time to time. But, um, yeah, part of the reason why I'm probably rosy is that I, I attended a um, uh, a football tournament uh, the week before last, yeah, like a week ago, and um, my son played in a four-day tournament, played seven or eight matches or something in that time, and I was absolutely burnt to a crisp. So um, that pain has now turned into a, you know, rosy complexion and what will soon be a trip to the um, skin doctor just to make sure <laughs> nothing permanent. Yeah. Anyway. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Liz, um, I'd like to uh, introduce you now and to the Territory Story family, to a man that was introduced to me by a former guest, Cruz Ignatius, who is, um, I think, He's what you call a super connector. This is what these people are called these days, and he's done a great job. Um, so let's introduce with a big warm welcome uh, Mr. Evan Sanna to the podcast. Evan's the uh, one of the head honchos at Darwin International Tennis Centre. Evan, welcome to the Territory Story podcast. Peter Liz, great to be here. Thank you for the warm introduction. Well, it's uh, been a little while on the making, Evan, and that's my fault and my apologies for that due to uh, not being able to talk to anyone for more than about five minutes without coughing for half an hour. So uh, thank you for your patience. Um, Evan, the first question we ask everybody when they come on the podcast is a simple one, but sometimes it, it, uh, it needs a bit of drilling down on as well, and, and that is um, tell us your territory story. Well... Been a Melbourne boy, born and raised, and having lived in the States for seven years, been a former college tennis player and doing a few other things, it wasn't in my immediate sights. So, backstory, I used to run a tennis coaching business, and that was in the heart of Melbourne in the eastern suburbs in Kew, if any of our listeners are familiar with Kew. And I did that for about five years, and as much as I hate to tell this challenging yet actual story lockdowns and perpetual interruptions it made me reconsider running a small business so it was fantastic when we were open but very challenging for all small business owners in melbourne when we were in lockdown period and that being said i came to the conclusion that 
figuratively speaking, is the juice worth squeeze? And so I then decided maybe it's good a good time to have a sea change and see if I can, well, grow a career with Tennis Australia. And I did search for several roles within the tennis and education industry and this came up and I thought, let's go for it and let's see what my territory story is going to eventuate. Brilliant. When, when you say, Evan, this came up, what, what, what is the role? And My role is centre manager, head coach of the Darwin International Tennis Centre. What was attractive was I was really fortunate to have TA fly me up and experience this firsthand. So I went to the Territory, I took the red eye here, I got here probably at 1am like we all do, mm-hmm. and then it was in the heart of the dry. So I want to say it was the same time, basically a year ago when I first came to Darwin. Mm. And from there, they had a lovely itinerary laid out for me. Breakfast here at the tennis club, doing some sightseeing near the waterfront and Naturally, they wind and dine me, and I had a sunset at the trailer boat club with <laughs> the CEO at the time, and it's hard to turn that down. So yeah. basically, they rolled out the red carpet for me, and I had no ch- no choice but to say yes to dress. So I did. So in about uh, October, November last year, I, I imagine you would have, um, you know, submitted some sort of uh, police papers for false advertising. <laughs> and, uh, as the build-up was just kicking you in the backside? Correct. Well, not just with the weather, but that that's our prime time as a centre. So we've got NITC, the National Indigenous Tennis Carnival, which is in August, and we're really fortunate to have Yvonne Gulagong come down and have, oh. I want to say at the time, don't quote me on the exact number, but it's between two and 250 Indigenous students from all around the country, and we have a large tournament And they do several activities, some cultural activities, as well as getting heavily involved with our tennis centre and tennis as a lifetime journey for them. And then shortly after that, we run three back-to-back professional tennis tournaments in October. So it's a really busy time of year. Mm. wasn't prepared for that. But as you know, when you're thrown into the deep end and you have that baptism by fire, you learn how to swim. So it's been a great journey so far. Absolutely. Look, um, let's go back to where it all began. So you were born and bred in Melbourne? Correct. Correct. Born in Fitzroy, so if you're familiar with Hawthorne. Yes. And lived there up until I was about 19. The backstory is to why I got connected with the Q Tennis Club. I literally, you mentioned you're in Barker's Road, if I can say that. So growing up in Argyle Road, which is not too far from Pilby Road, and literally, I lived down the road from the Q Tennis Club. So I was your typical Melbourne boy playing football and cricket or, or VFL, as, as it was called back yep. then. And then fell in love with tennis when I was about nine onwards. Mum, I want to say, did push it because being a caring and maybe overprotective at times, I won't hold it against her mother, <laughs> she was inclined for me to play tennis and I fell in love with the sport when I was nine or ten onwards. I saw guys like... Pat Rafter, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, and these guys were absolute legends and bastions mm. of the game. So I thought, let's have a go with that. Pardon me, Liz, you're about to say. Nine. Nine, nine or ten. Nine, so, yes. it, was, that, is that, was that late? Um, because nowadays, you know, it seems like you've got to put the golf club or the tennis racket in your kid's hand when, you know, in utero, you know, what, 
That's it. And that's what I like to say. It's never too young to start tennis. If they can walk or even if they can crawl, you can get them doing some of these fundamental basic exercises. So, yes, I was a late cut to the game and late to the game, but that being said, fortunately, having that transferable skill set, I was fortunate to pick it up and literally fall in love with it. I was the kid that was playing tennis at the tennis club on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day. Back then, they didn't let the juniors have their own kids because we weren't that responsible yet. So I had to go to the milk bar and get my key on a Saturday morning or a Sunday afternoon, whenever the hours of operation were. So I had to write that in into my Mm -hmm. diary. And then from there, we got the associate membership and we got our keys and it was all systems go. So it it didn't hold you back. You you, you powered forward from there. No, that's it. And it came to, as we can all appreciate, there is that opportunity cost. And we saw it with, well, Pat Cash, Leighton Hewitt. A lot of these guys did play several different sports. They played AFL up until a certain age. And then they had to make that opportunity cost to put all of their eggs in one basket. So that was when I was maybe 12 years old. I kept playing AFL up until about 12 and then said, I need to put this to the wayside and really give tennis a crack and put the blinkers on to see how far we can go. I, I think of Ash Barty too. Was she, she was more a cricket player than a tennis player, right? Indeed, indeed. I, I don't know her story too well, but I do understand that cricket was her first sport and one of her first main passions. And then after that, she perhaps was slightly late to the game, but it certainly didn't stop her. Talent gets you through sometimes, hey? Correct. Hey, Evan, did, where did you go to school? In Barker's Road, Kerry. Oh, you're a Kerry boy. Okay. Well, right. I went to school on Barker's Road as well. Very good. Down the other end. Um, <laughs> actually, I was just talking about your school today because um, I knew that um, Matt Rowell, who plays for the Gold Coast Suns, went there. And I had forgotten, but his best mate, I think it's Noah Answorth, um, he or Noah someone, he also went there. They, they were best mates. But I didn't realize that Nick Dacos went there as well. Okay. They played in the same yeah. team. So. That's um, it. Yeah, so with that, um, you also would have had opportunity because, you know, we, as you well know, with those schools, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of programs available to you and you, you can play your cricket and, um, well, really, you can play as many sports as you want as long as it doesn't clash on, on the days you're meant to play. Correct. And thank you for mentioning that, Peter. Area, I'll give them a small plug. Mm. They're great with running organised competition, organised sport and competing with the other APS schools. So we were fortunate to do that for tennis as well as AFL when I went there in Year 7. And then after that, and my claim to fame, I got into the 7 A's for football and then I decided to hang the boots up. But fortunate to get invited to play in the first for Kerry and that really springboarded my confidence and ability to spar with other better players within the school and then start doing tournaments and create that pathway for me. What what year did you make the first? In year eight. Oh, wow. Okay. So really, you, you, you had a lot of talent as a young fella. Uh, I, I don't know if I had talent. I think I... I worked at it. I started okay. to play five, six days a week with it, and I was, I was okay. And if any of our listeners are familiar with tennis, so I, 
I was fortunate to get involved with the club and start doing these group sessions and then start to organise. And back then, we didn't really have the organised club coaching as much as we do these days. Mm. In other words, to paint a picture, we went down to the club, it was a social atmosphere, and we would tee up hits with each other and do it very much on the fly. And sometimes we would call up and use the landline and say, hi, Mrs. So-and-so, I was hoping your son's available for a hit of tennis. Mm. So back in the good old days, we organised a lot of that ourselves and, and we did push each other organically within that club environment too. And also, um, now that I've got young kids and, and they're all playing different sports, the, the one thing that I really notice is that it's very much laid out for them, particularly, you know, through the private school system, if you've got uh, any desire, really, uh, at least to try, um, the schools really help to assist in that. But I was just saying to my sons the other day, because they both uh, play cricket and football, um, Really, you, you played one sport for up to half the year and then you simply dropped it and took on the other sport for, you know, whether it was summer or winter um, with potentially a little bit of athletics in there uh, towards the end of the year as well. But nowadays you can pretty much play your chosen sport all year round. And as you say, there's probably so many more ways of having hit-ups and games and, and practice. Definitely, and I think that's quite applicable for tennis. Here in the NT, and I'll plug DITC for a moment if I may, yes, we do have two main seasons, as we all know, being the wet and the dry season, and the dry season is elite for any sport. It is gorgeous, and it's a great time to coach in as head coach with my fellow teammates but that being said in the wet season a lot of people have the misconception that we can't always do sport because sometimes we get washouts and other things we are fortunate to have our main center court being court 16 having this undercover not just shaded but waterproof yep. center court where we do conduct a lot of group lessons and some private lessons so Yes, we don't always go live given the conditions, given the weather, but that being said, we've got one main centre court as well as we've got another shaded court next to us. And the courts do dry quite rapidly too, so we can get on and still do something which we're fortunate to do. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, you, you finished school at Kerry Grammar and what, what was the aspiration? Oh, j- just one question before that. Do you have brothers or sisters, Evan? One, one younger sister. Okay. Three years younger, and she is the exact opposite to me. She was into arts and crafts. She played the oboe. She likes heavy metal music and is a great painter. I'm none of these things. So I was your quintessential sporty boy, and she was your quintessential creative young lady. Yeah, but she was no good for a hit up on a Saturday afternoon. No, no, well, no, she was not. Unless you love winning. In the old days, we used to use backboards. And my brother um, was saying to me, he lives in North uh, New Jersey, and he said he can't find a backboard anymore. Nobody uses backboards anymore. Do you, do you use them? That was my main hitting partner growing up. When I couldn't find anyone, it was the brick wall. And yep. he or she was a great sparring partner because they would never miss. So, and I still encourage every junior athlete to hit against the brick wall. And that's been the success of so many athletes. Donald Bradman comes to mind. He used to do that. So it's, it, it's fantastic. And you can definitely get the repetitions in. 
you don't quite get the variety, but that being said, it's a fantastic substitute. Yeah, and if you get the angle wrong, you, you really have to scramble. I have a quick, 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 um, if you wouldn't mind, Peter, um, just I, I have a question, a burning question um, about, about covered courts. You talked about the one covered court and some others that are sort of protected. Are you considering and how expensive is it to cover courts or have indoor courts? Would you do more? And what's the, or is there a plan about that? Not in the near foreseeable future. It's something that I can certainly revisit. I don't have costs off the top of my head, but what I do know is that it the challenge with it is from an insurance perspective. What I do know from our previous CEO is that there was a process to actually get our main centre court insured because, well, in a cyclone situation, yeah. it could blow over and then to get it relayed or right. put back in position. So those are the elements where it can be tricky. But from a get more kids involved or participation or just general participation within Darwin, I think it's a fantastic idea because the sun can be quite harsh and that's the reason we don't always conduct tennis lessons in the centre of the day, rather in the early morning and towards the later part of the afternoon. Could you use, big, could you use parts of shopping centres? Indoor facilities, yes, and that is a thing very much down south and as yeah. we know a lot of country clubs in America they do opt for more of a strictly indoor facility. I went to Kansas and played D1 tennis there back in 2008 to 2010. In the winter, we train mainly indoors. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things that it's funny. Um, I've travelled a little bit and uh, I, I noticed that when I grew up in Melbourne, there was indoor tennis centres were quite common. But I don't recall seeing them in too many other places. And yeah, classic examples, there actually is one in Dubai, but it's not really well known. And it sort of strikes me as odd because, again, six months of the year, you really – I played at um, the Dubai – I think it's Dubai International Tennis Centre where I was a member of. I was about um, September, which is just after summer. And I swear to God – after we played, I thought I was going to die that evening. <laughs> it just took everything out of me that I had. And um, I just thought about it afterwards. That it's something that you'd think would be more common because of weather elements, but you don't see that many indoor tennis centres around the world. No, no, you don't. Going back to when I was just starting to play more seriously when I was around that 12, 13 mark. I do recall the one main indoor centre was Melbourne Park at the time before they did their expansion and now they've got Tennis World and many other indoor tennis courts. There were maybe five or six from memory and if it was washed out, we did try to catch a tram into the centre and see if we could jump on one of these indoor courts. Wheeler's Hill, I remember that was an indoor carpet facility, but you're right, it's so much more prevalent in other parts of the world and, and maybe that's something we need to revisit. Mm. The, the only thing I was thinking about that, um, you know, if you've ever been to a game at Marvel Stadium, a game of footy or cricket, the outdoor elements which do play a role in that at every other ground and would be the same in tennis, you know, if you've got a, a wind coming from behind, it helps you serve or if it's a wind blowing sideways, you've got to be sort of, you've got to allow for that with how you play. So maybe there's an element of it sort of takes the, you know, the natural outdoors out of it. 
It does. There are so many extenuating variables that us as tennis players or athletes do need to take into consideration. So on windy days, as we know for our tennis players listening, you might not go for that big first serve, which is a higher risk. You might go for more of a kick serve or more of a serve into the centre of the service box just to get the point started. Mm. Your rallies might be longer. The degree of spin on the ball might be heavier. So it can be more of a grind, as we say. Mm. All right. So you then um, graduated, I presume, with honours and uh, at least tennis colours from Kerry. And uh, I noticed on your resume that at some point, if if you're going to be serious about tennis in any way, at some point in your life, you're going to end up in Florida. I I did work in Florida as an IT recruiter. So <laughs> we staffed individuals on the software development life cycle. That was my first job out of graduate school. And yes, you're right. Those are the main tennis academies in Florida. We've got Nick Terry, We've got John McEnroe, John Newcomb. Are Australian. Mm. So, yes, the weather is premier for that sort of an environment. And there were some great tennis facilities there, undoubtedly. Mm. But my tennis journey actually started in Kansas. And so, how I segued to going over to the States, I had the harsh conversation. And this is something that I feel is necessary for teenage individuals which are aspiring to go pro is do you put all of your eggs in one basket and try to financially bankroll you going professional, whether it's in these one-man sports or one individual sports, let's take, for example, tennis or golf, and try to do the tour? Or do you go maybe an alternative route and then go there on the next step? So with tennis, there are a couple of main ways to go after you are one of the best juniors within the country, or at least at that time. And the two main ways that I saw were applicable to me, one was going to America and playing college tennis. And with that, you're really fortunate to get an exceptional education and hopefully get that funded, whether that's done academically or athletically. And Liz, I'm sure you're very familiar with the US system in that we can have that awesome education and still play an exceptionally high level of semi-professional sport. And the other alternative for tennis players is to, like you do in soccer, and we've become really good at that here in Australia to have the Premier League and other things, is to play Bundesliga, and that's a German club tennis option, and they pay for you to play there. And the goalposts have changed immensely since I was coming up. They used to pay for you to fly over there and do some periodic tennis and then come back. These days it's more central, as in you go over there for a certain time frame and then play your tennis and then see if you can springboard it. So you're doing nothing else but tennis under that system? In That's my understanding for the Bundesliga. I'm right. not an expert on it, but I believe it is just you go and play for your club and they provide lodging as well as other aspects with it i think you're on a stipend to make my understanding is they do pay your salary just like uh professional yeah. soccer players and so with the um i guess the two paths that you describe and it's really interesting to hear you describe those because you know people who perhaps don't follow tennis in inside and out uh you know they will know the williams sisters for example or they will know andre agassi 
there's a lot of people who don't just instantly make the tennis tour and, you know, be in the top 50 and, you know, be guaranteed entrance into tournaments. Yeah, tell us a bit about what that's like, that college life and, you know, making the challenger circuit and then trying to make your way into the, you know, the, the main circuit. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's ruthless. Either you win or get deported, figuratively speaking. And, and it's not quite to that severity. Yet that being said, every player is under a contract to win, let's say, for example, 70 to 80% of your matches in order to ret- retain your academic money. And that being said, there's also incentive. I grew exponentially as a young man because I graduated maybe with honours from a tennis perspective, but a C, C-plus average student at best because I did focus heavily on my tennis. And within that environment, I was so fortunate to actually be immersed with other students internationally and nationally, not just from a tennis perspective, but other student athletes. And you are held to a high regard in that we have something called a GPA, a grade point average. And with that, we want to get above what's called a 3.0, which is making all Bs. And then if you can get a 3.5, you get onto the Dean's List. And then if you can get, let's say, 3.75 or a 3.8, you become exceptional. You become in that top bracket. And a, to give an indication, a 4.0, which is always that's essentially perfect score. So it gave me an insight to become a really good student and to work hard in the classroom academically as well as athletically. And that, that changed my entire outlook as to what I could do in the classroom and what I could do after that. What's the split between uh, the academic side of things and the sports side of it? You know, what, is your, what would your average week look like in average, that environment? Average week would be if we're off-season, which was the fall, as they call it, from August up until November. That can look anything like maybe three days a week where we've got 6 a.m. practices. And then after that, we might have breakfast as a team. And then we go to our regular classes anywhere between, let's say, 8 a.m. up until 1 p.m. And that's the bulk of our tuition. That's the bulk of our classes. And then from there, we would do an afternoon practice anywhere between 1 to 3, 1 to 4. And sometimes we might extend that. And then we could maybe do a bit of studying. And then after that, have dinner, school in making sure we prepare for exams or assignments and then rinse and repeat. And with that, that being said, we do travel. We do have some tournaments in the off-season. However, when we are in-season, which is in the in the spring, then it is all systems go and we're on the road extensively. So every week when I was playing in Kansas, we were playing neighbouring states, Missouri, Oklahoma, other places central to Kansas. And then when I was in Tennessee, we were traveling to Alabama. We were traveling to, just trying to think, Arkansas and a couple of other neighboring states, Georgia. So we did that. Who are some of the top players from the Midwest in recent years? Arkansas Razorbacks. It's funny how you remember the ones where yeah, you, yeah. it was handed to you. So I I did receive a drink out against Arkansas. I, but, but you learn from that experience. So they, the Razorbacks were very solid at that stage. I remember the facilities were fantastic too. And a couple of 
just trying to think of the other other larger D1 schools. Vanderbilt, that's a big one in Tennessee, and they've got a fantastic Tennessee. We did some training exercises with those guys and also played the the adult competition in the off-season just to get a few matches under our belt. Mm. And what about players, Evan, from from that exact sort of circuit that you were a part of with the within the college system? A- any people that we'd know these days who sort of made it through to the next level? Definitely. The two guys which I'm fortunate to have played against and be in that age bracket would be John Millman. He beat yep. Roger Federer, good on him, and yeah. he's still going hard at it and love the way the gentleman carries himself. He's honest and upfront with everything, as well as John Pierce. And he's a fellow Kuyong member and he's played doubles Davis Cup and he went through the college system too and kudos to him for persevering through that system and making a fruitful career out of it. Mm. Is character more important in tennis than in other sports? My gut reaction is yes because in my circumstance, being a fellow international and being not to a a Rafael Nadal or another top player, even though I played semi-pro at that level, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing a nation. And I think that that, those values aren't always highlighted to the extent that they should be. So I've definitely spat the dummy on court and I've definitely been passionate in the past, but at the same time, you do need to rein it in and realise that you're not just representing yourself, you're representing your university. You're representing the eight other international guys and you're trying to lead your team to victory and then you're representing your nation because people are judging you by face value. If you're the only Aussie in the Midwest and people Mm. think that you want you're just another shrimp on the barbie or whatever the the funny colloquial expressions that have been perpetuated are. No, actually, you're you're representing someone with good values, which does share similar values. Mm. What does a tournament look like? Um, How how many people are in a team and and, how many games do you play and, and, you know, what, what, what does an end result look like? Absolutely. So tournaments at a college level, it can be sometimes done more at a, a round robin. We did do nationals within our specific region or particular region. And what it looks like, um, tip, your typical tournament is what's called a knockout tournament. And as we may know, let's say, for example, you've got a draw of 64 players and they all enter that tournament. Then if I come against you, Peter, come up against you and we play and you happen to beat me in three sets, then you progress and I'm done. So that's the harsh reality with these knockout tournaments. And then from there, your goal is to keep progressing as far as you can. And let's fast forward that to if you're a professional tennis player, depending on how you go in that tournament is how much income you take in for that week. So... To springboard that, you look at your lower-level professionals, which would have been your my next step up if I did decide to try to make a career out of it. And what that looks like, ideally you want to play a European circuit or maybe an Asia-Pacific circuit. You want to play tournaments where if you get knocked out, then during that same week you can enter another tournament. And that's quite prevalent in countries like France, Spain, Portugal, where they play on clay and they kind of can travel freely and move freely. And then from there, the next stage is, well, you want to get into some of these major Grand Slams and that's where you make your bread and butter, figuratively speaking. So even if you make 
and don't quote me on what the curse is, what the financial remuneration is first round, but a lot of players which are struggling to get by, if they can make a first round and even have just a loss first round in a main draw, that financial remuneration can be taking them throughout their 12 months journey to yeah. continue to play tournaments and to get them to the next level to not only qualify but to make main draw and then to actually develop a career. Yeah, I have heard that. I think someone was talking about it during the Australian Open this year that, um, you know, somebody progressed to a, a certain point in the tournament, which basically meant something like for the next two years, effectively they could afford to, you know, keep doing what they do without really winning anything, just to pay for their travel, accommodation, their, uh, you know, trainers and physios and stuff like that. Correct, correct. And and that's also something that I can kind of relate to some of these guys which are trying to get to that next level. And when I say that, guys which are ranked, guys and girls ranked between the 500 to 300 mark. Mm. And I'm not an expert with this, but just from accounts speaking to some of the players in October which do want to springboard their career, it's not until you're in the top 100 where you actually start to make money. So a lot of these coaches which are just grinding away, trying to get by, they do share coaches. They're in the backpackers, hotels or youth hostels and they're they're not eating out at night. They're still having their their 90-second rice as well as their tuna and they're saying to me, Evan, can you heat this up? So they're really doing the bare minimum so they can have the most in that longevity within their career. And then from there... When they do step up, then that's when they can afford to pay a coach or pay a coach a portion of their winnings and other things do happen with sponsorship and so on. I got exposed to this at quite a young age. This is a weird story, but bear with me. Um, I remember I was being quite a um, naughty character as a probably early, very early teenager and I was sentenced to the terrible Christmas holiday duty of not being able to go out and I had to paint the front fence of the house. So that came with a a double penalty because it's a very busy road that I lived on so lots of people would see me. Anyway, I remember I was sitting there on my little chair one day, probably in my pre-painting phase as I was, you know, using the, whatever that thing's called, where you scrape off the paint that's already there before you put your primer on. And this this bloke was approaching me. He was dressed in sort of all tennis outfit, had a big bag with obviously lots of tennis rackets in it. And um, as he approached, either he spoke to me or I spoke to him, I don't know. And um, we got chatting. And he's a professional tennis player, American guy. You've probably never heard of him, but he's a fellow by the name of Matt Mitchell. And he was staying at the California Motor Inn on Barker's Road, Hawthorne, which is famous for all the, where all the Bulgarian weightlifters defected from years later when they came to Melbourne for some weightlifting tournament. But I followed his career after that for a few years, and he's now actually some head honcho of some tennis thing in America, and he too went to a good university and uh, you know, for him, he was just giving it a go. I think he was from a fairly privileged family as well. But it was just probably 
the first year he was there, I talked to him about four or five times every time we'd walk past. This is when they still played the Oz Open at Kuyong. And then the next year he came and I only saw him once. And then the year after that, I think I saw him three or four times, something like that. And I couldn't work out why. And then I was talking to someone about it. Well, he'd progressed, you know, a week into the tournament the first time. He got knocked out the first round the next year. And I just, yeah, I remember following his career and thinking, gee, it's a, it's a hard slog, you know. Even if you're really good, it's a hard slog staying at a, let's be honest, a dirty motel, catching the tram to and from his tournaments every day. And he was making the most of his opportunities. That's it. And I'll just briefly recap on a couple of other struggling to get by stories with some of these fellow tennis players that I've got to know over my journey. I've heard of stories where it's an all-you-can-eat breakfast and some of these guys are stashing bread rolls within their tennis bag before they hop on the tram to go wherever they need to be or catch whatever bus they need to catch. So, yes, they do whatever it takes to get by. You're right. Mm. So take us back to at uni um, or college. You're playing the best part of every day. Um, and, and barring injury, which I imagine would also play a role in what you do, um, were there any times where you just felt like you were playing that much and, you know, really getting into it that it, I wouldn't say it felt easy, but you just felt like I'm playing as well as I can play. You know, you, you were sort of felt like you hit that untouchable stage. There was a brief purple patch and I would say this was in my, they call it a junior year, your third year university. So it's freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, four years. And so in my junior year in the fall, in our off season, I was hitting an okay ball. I was playing some good tennis and fortunate to do quite well. And I was humbled when the new Portuguese guy came to the scene and then decided to ramp things up and then tested me and then he started to, as much as I hate to say, challenge and beat me. However, and Manuel Marcelo, great player. We won regionals, so that was a fantastic experience with him, passionate player. That's That was the one moment where I did start to hit a good ball. But that being said, that's, that's unhealthy. When you get into that comfort zone or that complacent zone within your you're a big fish in a small pond, I look back and I think, well, it's great to experience that success, but at the same time, it's not reality. There's always going to be someone which does continue to push you mm. unless you're someone like Novak Djokovic at this present time. So that being said, it was it was great to experience that, but at the same time, every week in, week out, we were challenged with other guys which had the same motivation as me. They were largely international men and were fighting for a scholarship, were fighting for status in America to make sure that they can get a great education as well as springboard their tennis career. So it was ruthless and it's it's not for the faint-hearted. And I always give people an honest opinion about oh my son's thinking about going to college or my daughter's thinking about that and and then I need to have that realistic conversation about expectations well why are we going over there are we going over there because it's a springboard to try to go professional are we a good student and do we want to see if we can get an education funded for are we just doing this because we like tennis and we're kind of good at it so you need to be very clear with what your motivation is going into that because 
I'll tell you, I'll give you one story regarding, and I won't mention the gentleman's name, even though he's long gone. He only came to Kansas for a week. He met the team, met me. He stayed in my in our apartment complex. I set up a room for him. It was my second year. Set up a room for him. He didn't last more than a few days. He became homesick, missed his mm. girlfriend, didn't think the training schedules were what it was made out to be. And he said, no, this isn't for me. And so coach dropped him, dropped him off at the bus stop and said, goodbye, best of luck. So it's not wow. for the faint-hearted. It's a huge commitment and it is very much a four-year commitment. So I say to everyone, let's get really serious about this because it's a great opportunity to grow as a young individual and develop your sense of purpose and direction. And I'll just say one more thing about the education process. I, I'm a huge fan of the American education system in that your first two years, they offer what's called an arts or a science degree, which is kind of like what University of Melbourne are offering right now, in that you choose a range of general education classes, kind of like our year 12 on steroids, and you get a taste of what you like, what you don't like, and then from there, you can specify as to what your major, meaning what your degree is. So... I'll be honest, I'm still trying to work it out, and so far it's going really well. But that being said, I was more inclined to do something of a business nature because I was very inclined to learn about how businesses operate, and and that was interesting to me, whereas some people, into some individuals feel that, okay, I've done these arts or I've done these law courses, and maybe this is a better inclination for me rather than, as we know, just getting an ATAR school and then trying to choose the toughest one to get in no, it's good to get a taste and then try to go on your pathway of whatever that may look like. Mm. So, Evan, was it study first, uh, like education first, tennis second, tennis first, education second, or was it 50-50? The coaches would always say to us, and this is something I still firmly believe to this day, is that you're a student athlete. You are a student first and athletics comes secondary and not far off the mark from that because all of us as student athletes, we have requirements to meet a basic minimum GPA of I think a 2.5 or a, something around that mark and, and that's a basic GPA. So we're always striving to be the best academically and athletically within our tennis team and there was this competition within Mm. And to that effect too, that's something that when I was, I was fortunate to also teach at Swinburne University in Hawthorne and did that for a few years simultaneously running my tennis coaching business in Kew. And something I know with our education system at present is obviously contingent upon each university, but I don't always mark role. When I yeah. was a student athlete, they marked your role and there were incentives to have participation. So if you attended 90% of your classes, you would get an extra, maybe a few marks there. And if you did these extra credit activities or assignments, if you went to a particular, let's say, museum, you're doing an arts class and then you do an extra paper on this, you're more inclined to get extra credit. So there are built-in incentives, which I personally liked, and it also gets you in that environment where you are, you're forced in a healthy way to learn and get passionate about what you're doing, whereas I feel at times we might be lacking those incentives at present. Mm. 
And uh, what about injuries? You you play that much, you're going to have injuries, whether it's just niggles or whether it's, um, you know, I always note when I watch Rafael Nadal play, the um, the elastoplast on the fingers gets more and more as the games go further. You know, t- tell us a bit about that side of it because it's not all glamour. No, no, it's not. It is ruthless because it's a sport regarding repetition, as we all know. So especially when you're playing on hard court on a concrete surface out in the sunlight, I jokingly sat my, my niece once said to me, she asked what my age was, and I said it. I was in my late 20s at the time, and then she guessed I was around that age because I had, quote-unquote, the sad lines. So, <laughs> so I'll never forget that at the Christmas yeah. lunch table. <laughs> and, and that being said, it can be a brutal sport on the body. So not only are you out in the sunlight, but it is very physically demanding. I can safely say that I've probably got the back of a person 30 years my senior just from the compact nature of what we do. So the repetition, I've had some shoulder injuries. I've had a few cortisone injections, one in the subacromial capsule, one in the posterior cap, and so that's always fun. And it is tricky when you're on scholarship as an athlete and there is the expectation that as much as I hate to say this, you need to play with pain. And mm-hmm. it kind of becomes, I'm sure so many athletes have said this, it becomes a badge of honour and also becomes something that you're expected to do. And that's the dark side of college sport is you have to, I, I say it loosely, but for a lot of individuals you have no choice because you want that scholarship the next year. So did I play on injury? Yes. This is my war story. So I played on a stress injury which eventually to a stress fracture. I vividly remember I was playing against, I want to say it was Bethesda College, and I was a setup. I would have been maybe three one into it, not to, not to gloat, but I was cruising in this match. It was in the bag, and not every match was like that, but this one was. And so I was doing rather well, and I remember landing awkwardly on my foot, and I thought, wow, that doesn't feel great. And that niggle eventually went away. And then one, two weeks later, I'm in practice and then suddenly my left left foot is throbbing and it's just not going away. So I go to the trainers, the physiotherapists or a slightly similar skill set, and I mention this is happening. And the typical treatments were ice and stem. And so they'd put electrostimulation on certain body parts to get the blood flowing as well as ice for general recovery purposes. Rinse and repeat again. Tried to do that. It wasn't going away. Went to get a scan on it, and it was a stress injury. And I hate to tell this story, but I do want to kind of put it out there just to give everyone a realistic understanding of what it can be like. Is So as much as I hate to say it, sometimes us as players or athletes, you are treated like cattle and you're expected to play And even if it does get worse, even to the extent that the injuries can be adverse, so that stress fracture, sorry, that stress injury came to be a stress fracture. And then after my freshman year, I came back to get surgery on my foot and have full loose bones removed and have that polished. And that's always been a sore spot for me, but it's Mm. part of the game as much as I hate to say. But I don't regret it because after I 
fortunately had close to a full recovery, I was able to play another three good years and have some academic and athletic funding and still play some great tennis. So that was a tricky part, along with having these niggles where, and it wasn't just me, it was many other teammates and many other players have experienced the same thing where you just have to learn how to deal with that pain and do whatever it takes to make sure that you can go live and you can jump on court and you can win, you can get results. So, Evan, Mm. if you don't go to the U.S. and play college tennis, um, you know, I I have some awareness of of my son playing fixtures and, you know, not I didn't think he was as great as as some of the others. And and he didn't go on. But if you do in Australia, if you don't go to the States and play, what's your path in Australia to become a, a pro? There are a couple of pathways, however, there's not a clear and defined pathway. So we do encourage a lot of young athletes which are on the cusp of trying to go pro or trying to travel internationally to go to America to get that to get that scholarship, so to speak. So that that is a main pathway for a lot of Australian athletes. Again, to go to Europe to play club tennis in Germany or to play a lot of tournaments within a small time frame to travel freely to go to Europe to do this, the France, Italy, Spain, Portugal tournaments. So those are options. Regarding in our country, it's been challenging given COVID, as we can all appreciate. But that being said, before that, what I did growing up, and I'm so blessed to have a mother that would always drive me to tennis tournaments during the school holidays, from a, a grassroots level, is within your state, you want to play these tennis tournaments during the school holidays. And then from that, we want to get our ranking to a certain level to qualify for nationals. And that can happen at different places all throughout the country. And then once we get into that level, then hopefully we can be scouted to be one of the top state teams. And that happens throughout every state. And I was fortunate to do some work with Victoria when I was 16 to be in the 16 under state squad with a fantastic coach and he's still doing some great things, Steve Blundell. So that's kind of a pathway from the grassroots. But once you do go pro, again, it it is all try to go professional. You do need to make that investment and opportunity cost. And where you need to be is realistically we need to be winning these money tournaments, which are all around our country. And to be in that, okay, you're, you're clearly in the top 100 within the country to be springboarding your career. What it looks like also from a, a club level, down south in Victoria, we have something called pennant. And as you're growing up, and they've got this at Grace Park, as we know, Peter, as well as Kuyong, you want to play club tennis and eventually get your skill set to a level where you're playing grade one, or as they used to call it, state grade. They now call it Premier League. And Premier League, that's essentially the highest level in Victoria of your amateur professional level. And some of these guys are getting remunerated to play a game and to kind of put things into context for other AFL individuals. So it's kind of like our VFL, if you were. So you still get paid to play, but a lot of these individuals are still having a full-time job or they're still doing other things. Yeah, I wasn't going to ask you this question at this point, but seeing as we're talking about ranking and pathways and all that, can you just describe how unbelievable Nick Kyrgios is, given he hardly plays? I, I, I just I can't figure him out. I love him as a player. 
I think he's probably a loose unit as a bloke, but he his skills are like virtually no one I've ever seen. And he's the only one who's beaten these three legends that we've seen in our lifetime. Could you just talk a little bit about him? Fantastic player. Phenomenal player. For him to do the tweeners and for him to have such great, great game sense. And let's go back to his talent. Yes, he is a talented player, but that being said, he's worked tremendously hard to get there. If if any of our listeners want to Google Nick Kyrgios when he would have been, and don't quote me on the exact age, but let's just say he could have been around 10, 11, 12. When he was a young boy, he was a slightly larger boy, and he eventually grew and became lean and fit and turned into the monster and great machine that he is. So... I do believe there's been some natural talent there, but at the same time, he's worked very hard to get to where he is. But that being said, once you get to that top 10 level, you need something special. You need an element of, hey, I just need to turn that notch up. And I think, it, don't quote me on this, I know there was a, a TV series done on Marty Fish, and I want to say it's Breaking Point. I should know this if, if we've seen uh, this. I think I've seen it, I've, yeah. I've seen the show. I think Breaking Point. That was excellent, yeah. It was done on Curios and the ones recently. Are you talking about the one with Andy Roddick? And and that's another one too, and they yeah, did yeah. one on Marty Fish prior to which. And, and what it talks about is Marty Fish was, he was sparring with, Andy Roddick at the time, and, and he was always yeah. aspiring to come up to Roddick's level. And within that documentary with Doco, as we say, he was really uplifting Roddick, saying that Roddick was on that pathway and that pathway was already made for him. Yeah. And he was always just trying to be second best to Roddick, and that was kind of good enough for him. But then there was a turning point for him where he knuckled down and he doubled down, worked extensively hard on his game, and then one of his great accomplishments was he got into the Masters Series and I want to say his best ranking was nine in the world or something of that top ten level where he had that turning point. I still believe it's true for Kyrgios and not to discredit what he's achieved. He's won the Australian Open. He's achieved so much. But I still feel he's got much more in the tank if yeah. he can just turn it up a notch. That being said, I'm definitely not going to have a, a crack at anyone because it's it's all well and good to throw stones in glass houses as we say in our country but it's uh, it's an explanation but not an excuse i do think that there is an opportunity for him to mature and start being a better role model and i'll be the first to say it i think there is an element Mm -hmm. where he could be a better role model i used to work with this one young student and he said to me, and again, not knocking Kyrgios, but he said to me, my favourite player is Kyrgios because he can do whatever he wants. And from a, a playing perspective and yeah. from a, a work hard and accomplishing, that's great. But for certain antics, I mm. think us as players all need to exemplify the fact that our next generation is so impressionable and we need to set the standard as to what a good role model and a good mentor looks like. And I, I encourage Nick and I encourage a lot of players to always have that in the back of our mind. And I know Nick does, but we're all passionate out on court. 
and mm. such certain things happen. So again, not going to have a go at anyone, but that's something that I've always been acutely aware of, especially during my coaching journey as well as playing journey. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, uh, look, I think he's late twenties now, Nick. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's ever going to reach that point that you expect of him. Um, and I'm not sure. And I'm absolutely not making excuses for it, but I'm not sure if he controls that, if he's still then got the wild card element when it comes to his actual tennis. But I'm the same. Like I, I sit there and I watch that um, Australian Open where he and uh, Kokonakis won the doubles together. And in terms of the tennis they played, it was fantastic. But there was just some moments that were a little cringeworthy when they carried on at different times. You just think if you could just drop that one element, you would be a superstar in, in so many other ways as well as what you do on the court. Correct. I think he, I think he's a bit like the Dennis Rodman of tennis. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> the, the other thing too I will say, um, just with the um, Roddick and Marty Fish story, uh, which I found interesting, and I think Kyrgios has this in, in him as well. Because um, that was an interesting story in that they lived together. Essentially, Marty Fish moved into the Roddick household. That's right. Almost without putting them down, I think the Roddicks thought, oh, this would be a great hitting partner for Andy to have. The difference being that Andy had the killer instinct and Fish was too nice. And later on down the track, after Marty had had all his injuries and I think he had some mental health struggles as well, he ended up playing Andy in a game and he beat him. And he beat him because he played him in his own game. And when previously he would have seen the other guys hurt or upset or whatever, he may have backed off. He went harder and he beat him. And that's eventually how he got his, you know, top 10 position for that period of time. Definitely. And thanks for rejoining my memory. That very much was just a hitting part of what he was at that time, indeed. And if I could circle back to Andre Agassi and. Yeah. Talk about his book you, open. You're never going to get a you're never going to get a more um, open minded listener to this because he, my all time favourite tennis player, just absolutely the first time he won Wimbledon, I watched that entire tournament, and to see how he took that on and took all the risks and everything he did, uh, yeah, I mean he, he's Peter, a, I think it's just because you have a thing for Brooke Shields. Well, she wasn't on the scene at the time, but I did like the long, flowing hair. Let me tell you, Liz. That's it. Let's not forget about Steffi Graf either. That's it. That's yeah. right. Anyway, yeah, c continue, Evan. And as we know, Andre had that wild card element, had that kind of rough, dare I say, the, the Dennis Rodman, the Nick Kyrgios. He had the flair back in his early stages of his career. And then all of a sudden he puts the blinkers on and starts to win Wimbledon as well as compete fiercely with Pete Sampras. And it, it's interesting how when you're reading, I want to say it's one of the opening chapters, that he doesn't rate Pete Sampras initially, yet it's only until Pete starts to mature that all of a sudden he is the next big thing. And towards the end of his book, he talks about how, and I'll, I, I'll paraphrase the quote, he concludes by talking about one of our greats of all time, Roger Federer, and he says, well, Roger Federer, keep an eye out for this guy because regarding weaknesses, he has none. 
And I've just found that so profound because he's been one of the, the best all-rounder athletes. And back onto the maturity thing yes. with with Agassi, I do feel that Agassi, yes, he, he did mature within his career and like Marty Fish, and we see that with so many players. So mm. it's it's fantastic for him to do that. And I, a question to you guys, who's the greatest tennis player of all time? Jeez. Liz? Well, I know every I know everyone says it's it's Federer, or a lot of people say it's Federer, but man, I did I I was I I saw the tour, the the final uh, between um, Djokovic and Nadal in 2012 at Melbourne, mm-hmm. which was if I think it was six hours. Right. We had a six we had a six a.m. flight back to Briz, and it was I think we left the stadium at two thirty in the morning. Wow. And, you know, I was exhausted <laughs> and I couldn't believe how those guys could. And, and after he, after he won, Djokovic just, you know, rips off his shirt and, 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 you know, his fists in the air. And you just think, man, that guy is, mm-hmm. you know, unbeatable. He's just incredible. And he's gone on what is 23rd Wim? what was 23rd. Did he just win Grand Wimbledon? Slam. Um, 23rd Grand Slam and was it Paris and uh, sorry, I haven't been paying, paying attention, but God, you know, how could I, I don't know. Is, is Federer better than that? Mm, Yeah. Such a good question. What do do you think, Kevin? I, I'm biased because I like Federer off the court. Better bloke. (laughs) There you go. You said it. So I I try to be a gentleman and play with a straight bat, but that being said, Federer, he is, He's all class. And, again, he's one of those quintessential examples where I think they did a documentary on him and he used to dye his hair blonde and have a bit of a temper. And it wasn't until the passing of, I want to say, one of his coaches or someone yeah. which was very near and dear to yeah, him. That, too. That, that's it. That's yeah. it. Thank you. And, and then I want to say it was maybe 18 or 20 onwards, that's when we saw some true consistent upward trajectory of his career. So he was a late bloomer to an extent too regarding his, his mental maturity and trying to toughen up, and he did that. Yeah. And, and sorry, sorry to jump yeah. in, but just going back to his, the, the way he carries himself, he's acutely aware that he's leaving a legacy. He's acutely aware that he is a gentleman representing one of the, the great sports that is a lifetime sport and you can play at any age and, and he knows exactly what he's doing, where he's at and where he wants to go regarding representing the sport, respecting the sport and he's come through many other aspects. So a question I have about that is, you know, we think of right now or just the era that's that's ending or seeming to end with Nadal and Djokovic and Federer as being a golden age of tennis. But as you know, Rod Lavers has written a book, I think, called The Golden Age. So was that the golden age? What? Where Where are we? I'm so glad um, yeah. you bring that up, Liz, because <laughs> I was thinking we, we, we might be blinded by the fact that we've had these three greats. Plus, as much as I don't like her, you know, which Williams is? I keep thinking Venus, but her sister, Serena. Serena, as I'm told by my um, researcher here in the background. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, she on the lady side, 
you know, we can't discount her either. But then when you talk about the greatest of all time, you know, we, we've got to think about Navratilova and Chris Everett Lloyd and you, know, you mentioned um, Sampras and Agassi already, but then you go back to Laver and Margaret Court and Edmondson and, you know, there's there's – and that was – pre-professional too so it was probably harder to travel and get to tournaments and you know these guys are all in private jets these days correct and i i can't speak about the the golden era given um unfortunately don't have the first-hand experience but what i can talk about is i was blessed to work with warren ma he's been coaching some of the top juniors for decades down south in melbourne he got to, I want to say, the fourth round of the Australian Open. He used to spar with Pat Cash. And he told me a story whereby he believes Rob Laver at the time, when I was growing up doing some work with him, was one of the best athletes because he was part of that transition between amateur to professional. And there were certain pay restrictions you had to forego. And I do recall seeing, it could have been a 60-minute segment on Rob Laver or something to the to that nature, to that degree, where Rod was told by some of the other guys on the Davis Cup squad, it's a different ball game when you do go pro. There actually is a disconnect regarding your skill set, and it is more, I keep using the term, ruthless. So, so that being said, he was told he just needs to tighten up a couple of elements of his game, but hands down, to win four slams back-to-back in one year and to achieve so much, during that time frame and to travel and not have the luxuries that we're blessed with, yes, by all accounts, Rob is absolutely one of the greatest of all time. Plus the other luxury too, Evan, have you ever tried playing with one of those Slazenger rackets from the 70s and 80s? <laughs> Just getting the ball on the string is a hard effort. That's right. That's the, I forget the it could have been Bjorn Borg that Andre Agassi was photographed with going back to open and he's yeah. using a full-size tennis racket I want to say so yeah, yeah. we're fortunate to now have these modified size rackets and growing up playing AFL we were fortunate to have these mini footies yeah, as yeah. we say but yes it is hard yakka carrying one of those literally it's a cricket bat so I'm glad we yeah. modified things yeah who are the most interesting young players coming up uh, yeah, Rod, Rod Labor mentioned Sebastian Corda as being someone to watch. Casper um, Rudd. Who else is? Who else is worth watching? I, I can't speak too much about the the juniors because I unfortunately I'm not in that space acutely. I'm more at a grassroots space right now. And what I can tell you regarding a grassroots space. So we and thanks for mentioning this when we first connected, Peter. So. Let me talk about Cruz Hewitt, Leighton Hewitt's son. And mm. he's, I want to say, and fact check me on this, he's about 14 years old. He came up to the J60 the second week of uh, ITF and he won it. I was behind the counter largely making coffees, taking <laughs> loose strings and getting to know players. And I was so the tennis coach. That's it. <laughs> so that's, that's the other half of being sent to manager and so working with these players and getting to know them and just saying thanks for coming up and supporting our centre and yep. supporting tennis in the Territory. And Cruz, really humble young man, well-spoken, polite, as you would expect. And mm. with his journey, with every single match, Leighton Hewitt was, he came down, I want to say, for the first couple of days and gave some great support to his son along with Cruz's coach, 
And he didn't win it hands down. He had to grind through these matches. One of the boys that won the first week, Harry Pugh, a Kiwi left-handed tennis player, he's another up-and-comer, which I want to say he might be around that 15, 16 age. Keep a lookout for these two young men because they definitely hit a fierce ball higher than, a, would say, a, a Premier League piece and maybe even just above that. So these guys have got what it takes to be a, a professional junior to crack into hopefully playing some of these Grand Slam junior events and then seeing if they can springboard that career. And Liz, what I saw with Cruz is he's got the same sense of determination that his father has. He's got that killer instinct. He does the come on. He G's himself up. And he's got a similar defensive, I like to use the term counter puncher, where he does grind on the baseline. He does utilize the other player's pace. And I want to say he's developing that all-court game where he can come in, attack, and do what we call a transition net player. So he's, he's got what he takes. He, he's a taller lad, being closer to the six feet, and he might even be higher up. So right. he'll definitely have the size with him to take his game to the next level. When, when you're looking for, for young talent, what makes you think, yeah, this, I, I want to work with this, with this talent? There's an element of grit I feel you can't teach. I think some players have it and some don't, and I think that's indicative of every sport. I do think that having Leighton, his father, as a role model and maybe partially as a coach unofficially, but I'm I'm glad that Leighton's made that decision to have a professional set tennis coach because I'll, I'll just segue into this, my personal two cents, is that... The lines can get blurred when you have that parent as a coach. There are so many successful parent-coach relationships, but at the same time, there have been some unfortunate circumstances where it does get toxic, it does get out of hand, and that relationship can get severed, as we all know. Can I say it? coaches his kids. <laughs> oh, I, I shouldn't. Okay. No, no, no. I, no, I, I don't. I'm, I'm very much that part-time um little tips in the ear coach i'm not a coach at all Liz. but um as soon as you talk about parents coaching in a toxic relationship there's there's only one that comes to mind and i feel so sorry for her to this day because i think she still bears the scars of it but that poor old yelena dokich i mean the fact that she got as far as she did with that ogre as a coach was really just true testament to how good she must have been and the bloke causing a nuisance at Wimbledon, getting kicked out. And and I've heard, I haven't read Broken, her autobiography, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that she goes in depth as to the, literally the scars that she bared. So, and for her to do so much in the coaching and the commentating space and share her story and be a survivor and continue to be a, a great representation is fantastic. So mm-hmm. I, I think she's doing some great things and I hope that she continues to share her story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, look, let's um, just wind it back quickly. I, I, because... I actually did coach my kids though, Peter. I did. Did I, you? Did. I coached soccer. And baseball, no, well, yeah, and um, and that's that's why they are the athletes they are today. As in, they're no longer playing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Should we just call you Liz in quote marks, Richard William Spencer? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm yet to to watch the film. A yeah. couple of my clients, a couple of the young ladies that I work with. 
they've drawn some sincere inspiration from King Richard. And I find it fascinating how he was one of the few parents which delayed the time frame with which the girls, Serena and Venus, would enter tournaments because he didn't want to tarnish their mindset to thinking they could be great, they could achieve so much things. And as a tennis coach, my school of thought, and again, my philosophy does change the longer I do this, but I do believe there's no substitute for match play. Mm. And for them to have that delayed tournament experience is quite unique, might I add. But that being said, I've been told it's a great film. I need to watch it. Didn't hamper them too much, did it? No. (laughs) Um, So just take us back to um, finishing up in the States. Uh, You you mentioned that you were at uh, college for four years and then you stayed an extra three years. Um, yes, yes. And then at some point you came back. How, how did that all sort of transition? Well, so I did a couple of things after college. So in grad school, I was really fortunate to, again, using that college tennis experience to have decent grades, to have a good GPA and to get into graduate school and have that essentially funded. So I had a master's paid for, which I'm very fortunate to be in that situation. And then with that, I did a couple of other things and I oversaw the 600 undergraduates that lived on campus. Liz, if you're familiar with RAs, or that's yeah. so I was a resident assistant and then springboard that resident director overseeing all of the college students and doing on-campus activities, student engagement, all of that, which was fantastic. And then after that, I got into project management and IT recruiting. And my main job out of grad school, like I mentioned, was an IT recruiter which brought me to Florida, sunny Florida, and we would find anyone with a niche skill set and essentially put them to work. So I did a couple of other things. And what I found in my 20s, and I mentioned this to Jason that works with me, and he's a fellow senior coach and programs manager, does a lot of finance-specific work, looking at the numbers for the centre and another centre. And what, again, I'm, I'm not... Yet to be a, a senior gentleman, been at 34, touch wood, years young. I like to say to Jason and other individuals in their 20s, try things and figure out what you don't like and then start doing things which I, I read a book when I was in grad school, What Colour Is Your Parachute? And what I found in my relatively short career is that you want to do something you like and something you're good at. And if they can overlap, it's a no-brainer, which is why I'm here coaching, being involved with the sport that I love, which has been so good to me. So that's something I do preach to, to Jason and many other individuals, figure out what you don't like. And it was it was a challenge being an IT recruiter. What I did find being in America, Liz, is that having an accent can be fantastic, can be a great conversation starter, can be memorable, can sometimes help in certain situations. But it can also be to your detriment if you're trying to sell someone a job over the phone to build that trust and rapport when you're a cold caller can actually be not advantageous. It can be perceived as a scam and many other unfortunate things. Great experience nonetheless. I got to learn about certain things and certain IT and technical things. So to that being said, it was a really good experience too. I can relate. People always think I'm trying to scam them. (laughs) <laughs> it's not always true. Maybe because you are. <laughs> no, that's funny. Um, 
All right. So how did you get back to the uh, country of origin? That's it. So with the American-US trying to get either a green card or trying to get, I think it was an H-1V visa or alternatively an E-3 Australian work visa. So I entertained a couple of options and and there was someone special at the time that uh, she wanted me to stay, obviously, and unfortunately the goalposts just didn't align with that. But back on to with the company, unfortunately the company didn't sponsor me. And so that's the harsh reality. So so then it, I had to come to the harsh actuality or the realisation rather that I've had a great journey in America, time to come home. And, and with that, I did the first thing that I could essentially find work, which was become a tennis coach. And it's not always glorious being a tennis coach. It can be hard yakka. And sometimes these opportunities can be more casual in nature, not to discredit tennis coach. And I feel that this skill set is invaluable. If you can be a tennis coach, you can do so many things. You can sell, you can manage schedules, you can manage the expectations of all sorts of individuals. Uh, You're in sales, you're in management, you're a psychologist, you're a teacher, you're everything as a tennis coach. So I started to do that and many doors open. So once I got my first job as a a casual tennis coach, I was fortunate to get another role as a senior coach and then went back to school or teaching school to to get what's called a junior development coaching qualification. And I did that simultaneously looking to get my PhD in organisational leadership. So I thought if I can't get an office job because my resume says I'm America this, America that, and it was a slight barrier to entry I felt, then I may as well go back. And I found someone at Swinburne University in Hawthorne, Peter, that was an ideal individual that could oversee and shadow me. And with that, we looked at 360-degree modules. So I don't know if you guys have ever had a rough day at work or you don't really care for your boss. And I thought, well, let's, this is something which I can dive deep in. I find really fascinated how you can constructively give 360-degree feedback and create a really bulletproof organisational culture. And I think that's indicative of every workforce. So that's something I got passionate about. Found the right mentor with that. And then I started to teach at Swinburne University and that was something I'm, I'm still very truly passionate about is, is teaching business and business-type situations at, at Swinney. And so I did that, and then there was an opportunity to be the head coach and business owner operator at Q Tennis Club, the club I grew up at. I certainly had to go through the same hoops as everyone else, but that being said, it was for, I was fortunate to have those relationships which may have got me over the line and, and with that, then I, I did that for five years. So that was essentially my journey coming back to Australia. Wow. Are you still teaching at Swinburne? I'm, I'm not at present. I would love to get back into it. It's just as much as I hate to say, given COVID, the sessional teachers were the first ones to go. And now I think they're revisiting that. Fortunately, students are now coming back to our country. And as, as we know, it's a huge revenue generator. It's something that we excel at. So I think the more students that come back, the more teaching uni jobs will be in demand. And that's something I'd love to get back to. Mm. 
<laughs> no, I went to Swinburne, Liz. I did not know that, Peter. Yeah, I did. Did my first radio job there too, actually, on the Swinburne Community Radio Station. I think we and got two sessions in before we got kicked off permanently for uh, insulting the student union boss, but uh, <laughs> it was it was a great little uni. It wasn't there for very long. I got distracted into other things, but we've had... I'm surprised you and Evan haven't met each other. You have, you've crossed yeah. paths in so many ways. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that, but um, <laughs> Evan's a little bit younger than me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's funny because that whole kind of area, you know, where Evan went to school and lived and everything, it's it's almost like a little microcosm within itself. It's, it's very similar to, to how I grew up as well. Um, so, Evan, you then sold up the business or, or, or moved on from Q and we we know before that Tennis Australia falsely advertised the job and the fact that the weather is, you know, 29 and beautiful all year round. And you've now landed as the head coach and the head honcho there at uh, DITC. So um, tell us a bit about that because, you know, for those who don't know, uh, it's it's not very old. That wasn't there probably five or six years ago and it's a pretty amazing tennis centre which has already hosted a Davis Cup round and you know has got some some pretty big achievements to list for such a remote part of the country and and for such a you know young place in its infancy. Thank you so much and yes so they they were not exactly 100% accurate with the description but that being said it's it's going really well and you're right, it's a new centre, so don't quote me exactly, but I want to say she was built here in 2017, $16.7 million complex. We've got 16 tennis courts, two undercover, and it, it is a state-of-the-art premier tennis centre, comparable to any other state or any other territory. So we're really blessed to have this. And within our short time period, we host some of the main professional junior and men's and women's tennis tournaments and I do believe there's scope to do more of that going forward as well. And something that we're working towards is we have Ben Cunningham and he's recently adopted more roles within the diversity and inclusion aspect and something I'll be working with him come August. There's a lot of individuals which do have several different disabilities and I always like to say it's good to focus on one's ability and we might look to do some more wheelchair tennis. I've been approached by a lady named Holly which is down south in Melbourne with Tennis Australia and we're looking to kickstart maybe a blind and low, vi low vision come and try tennis day. So we're looking to really create that holistic vibe here at our tennis centre. And let me talk more about our program if I could just plug it yeah. briefly. So what we're doing, something that I'm really fortunate to work with, uh, some of the team members that have recently left, uh, Simon as well as Leah, they did a fantastic job in launching our brand being the Darwin Stingrays. And I think, it's in, again, it's indicative of, of the territory because some of these cute animals, and if you see the logo of my shirt, Darwin Stingrays, <laughs> so it's got a, a little, little smiley face with some cool fluoro colours and tennis rackets at the back so sure that these things won't kill you but they'll make you stronger hopefully as long as we don't yeah, swim yeah. in the water that's the main thing so we wanted to get something which was nostalgic and we we launched that 
And with that, we offer a tennis program where children, just like a gym membership, they can come up to four sessions a week and we offer flexibility and affordability. So it works out to be just $25 a week. They can join me as a head coach, Coach Evan, and learn the basic fundamentals. And we start as young as three or four years old in blue stage, and then we gradually progress through higher age groups and higher skill sets and abilities. And, and for tennis, it's one of those transferable skill sets. So right at a basic function, and you can relate as a coach, Peter, we just want them to get to throw, hit and catch, and it doesn't matter what sport, and to get that basic gross motor skills built in at a fundamental age level as soon as they can walk, then... And the discipline. As, and the discipline. Thank you, Liz. Absolutely. And the discipline and the aspiration to continue to set the bar and to keep doing that goal setting. So it, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about, especially within that. I would say that younger space is something that I'm, I am excelling with our tennis program at. So as soon as they can walk, they can come and join our program. And people might think, well, you need a big tennis court or you, the rackets are too big. On the contrary, we use larger, softer compression balls. And one of the first basic tennis lesson activities we do when someone's new to the game is, just like in hockey, we roll that tennis ball along the ground, maybe within a two-metre frame or two-metre distance, and we get them rolling and trapping the ball. So we just get the consistency and accuracy, and that flows into maybe doing a bounce and a hit, and then we gradually progress to the higher ages. And then what we do want to do from a, a centre perspective or a, a tennis MT or a tennis in the territory even is we want them getting to do territory league, and that's something Emily, in she's she's a tennis coach. She's leading competitions and tournaments, and she's doing many other things in in the media space. She's a, a jack of all trades and a master of most of these. She's doing a fantastic job. So she's heading up territory lead. And what we want to do with our club players here and our other players at different centres is to get them playing in our unique territory league and that way they do get that match play they do start to play once a week and then from there they play different different tournaments within the territory and hopefully go down south and get a taste of of higher level competition so again going back to the pathway we discussed peter that's that's kind of the, the pathway from our club perspective mm, i love those red and yellow balls that are i think they're the sporting ones they're bit bigger and a bit flatter gives me a chance against the kids yes that's it <laughs> and if you smack them it doesn't break a window too <laughs> exactly that's exactly do right. you have children evan i i do not but hopefully on the cards you've been day. busy you've been that's you've it. been sort of busy so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right so moving forward evan um i know that when the center was built there at marara uh, there was a bit of a rush in the end because Australia was desperate to get that Davis Cup league played there. Um, I don't know whether it was just the time of year for the weather or whether it was to put off the opposition. Probably was to put the opposition off, to be honest. Um, what what sort of things does the centre offer regularly in terms of you know tournaments and uh, events that, that are coming up there? Absolutely. I've actually got this saved as my background. If I minimise <laughs> this, will will you still be able to see me? Do you know? Uh, probably won't be. Oh, we might. Let's have a check. Okay. Probably will. How's it looking now? You, yeah, I can see you. You just can't see me probably. Okay. Yeah. Give me one moment. So 
kind of run you through the playbook. So we've got the Rafael Nadal Tour, which is, so that's on 9 through 12 July. So that's the big one we're planning, and that's a junior tournament. Yeah. And then we've got a couple of other local open and junior tournaments. And then come August, we've got our main National Indigenous Carnival. That's towards the end of August. And I want to say that's for a five-day period. And again, Yvonne Gulagong and over 200 Indigenous students from all around our country will do some cultural events and we also intertwine tennis and how to springboard that to make sure it's a lifelong game for them mm. we'd, we'd love to get ash Barty up here so i don't know if anyone yeah. knows ash Barty, but we've got a, a mural up there on the second level of our center if you guys want to come by one day come and check the center out so on the top level where you can oversee court 16 there's a fantastic mural of Ash Barty as well as Yvonne Gulagong, and it, it kind of shows the different eras as well as the the fact that actually they're both fantastic athletes in their rightful attributes. And after we have that event, we've got the so we've got the pro tours as we like to say, and then towards the end we have I think an open and a junior, and then that wraps up our year. Yeah, uh, what about participation levels um, uh, in in the NT? Are they uh, consistent? Are they improving? Are they decreasing? You know, what's what's the general participation rates like? We've had probably some some general consistency. I'd say all throughout the year. I feel with morale with our location being in the sports hub and being relative to several sporting suburbs, so to speak. We've always got a, a quite a consistent intake. I will say, though, during Australian Open, we do see a huge yeah. peak in tennis interest, and it's fantastic free publicity and promotion for any tennis business nationwide. And, again, I'm really fortunate to be with a great company that can host such a – and I'll be the first one to say it, it's a cash cow. We make so much money in that two-week period, which does fund all of our – what we like to call MA is the different divisions within every state. So we're fortunate to have that, and I'm sure that springboards to what we can do here. And during that time, I see a huge increase, more so in adult tennis. So we find there's a lot of individuals which we offer come and try days, cardio tennis, where it's like doing a spin class in gym, except <laughs> I'm biased, it's probably more enjoyable. You listen to music, run around, hit tennis balls, and we also offer beginner as well as adult intermediate tennis lessons and we do see a spike in that as well. I imagine the doctors and surgeons also get a spike that time of year as well. They'd be thankful for the extra interest in the oldies <laughs> taking up tennis. That's it. That's it. More <laughs> with the physios definitely. <laughs> so, are they all clay? Or I mean are, are they all hard courts? Yes. Yes, yes. All of the sixteen tennis courts are hard courts, correct. Yeah. That is tough on your body. It can be. That's it. So it's it's something where, again, at any level, and jokes aside, you need to make sure you warm up, warm down, mm. ice up, all of that. Try to – I like to jokingly treat my body like a Mazda. I need to make sure it runs forever, even though that won't happen. <laughs> is that hard court um, – this might be showing my age here, but is that hard court like the rebound ace surface or is it more like the plexi pave, like concrete surface? just with the coloured paint over the top? Not showing your age at all. And, and I'm, that's how they used to call it rebound ace at the Australian Open. 
and for our listeners, as some of us may know, so rebound ace, it's essentially having a layer of compressed rubber underneath a concrete surface, and that's probably the best way to describe it. And with uh, hard courts, it's it's essentially mainly concrete, but there is some deviation within hard courts, and sometimes you can get an element of compressed rubber, and sometimes you call that plexicushion. Generally speaking, hard court, rebound ace, it's very similar on the body. Where you do start to get a difference, as we may know, is when you're playing on synthetic grass, that can be more gentle on the joints, especially when you're playing on grass. I love it. If if any of us can jump down on a grass court one day, it's it's a really beautiful experience. The ball does skid through those, so it's a completely different bounce. What what shoes are you, what shoes do you recommend for for reducing the impact? For I tennis specific shoes, and I know it kind of goes without saying, but tennis specific shoes because I'm I'm biased. I I'm an ASICS guy. I don't get a cut from this, by the way. <laughs> Maybe I'll need to revisit that afterwards. Yeah. yeah. That being said, if if you can get a tennis specific shoe, and there are probably two main types. There's one which is an all-court surface and there's another one which is a clay court surface. And the clay court has a, a zigzag herringbone pattern and with that you can stop on a clay court because with clay courts, as we may know, you can slide and then change direction. And that's a skill set in itself if you don't play on clay yeah. growing up. A lot of players struggle when they first hit the tour and they go to Europe. Let's say they've played in Darwin for the whole time or or. Um, a suburb or a particular area where it's majority majority is hardcore and you go and play on clay, it's a it's a completely different language. So you do know learn pardon me, it's getting late in the evening. You do need to learn how to move and adjust accordingly. Mm. Mm. And what about speed, Evan? Is grass the fastest, then hardcore, then clay? Grass is the fastest, followed by hardcore and clay. I one hundred percent agree with you. And they don't actually, to my knowledge, I think it could be Indian Wells where they've got an indoor carpet from memory. They used to do that. Those are the three main surfaces throughout the entire mm. world and in that order, correct? Yeah, I'd really only ever played on that mud grass growing up and I thought that was a pretty good surface, but someone said to me it's the slowest surface on planet Earth and that's why they don't play any professional tournaments on it. It, it can be. It depends on the, on the mud grass, on the synthetic grass. But sometimes... Um, here I am starting to become a nerd, but you can get different levels of grain, the different thickness, different beds of sand which lay on top of that. So sometimes you can get a very fast baked grass court. Other times it can be extremely slow. So it really depends on how mm. you make it. And to looking down south when it does rain, that's another element where it can shoot <laughs> through. So all sorts of factors. I found that the older the court, the faster they went. The newer mud grass ones were particularly slow that's all right uh liz any other hard-hitting questions that your journalistic mind can think of oh so many questions um the the one one that comes to mind is in the dry we have a lot of we have a lot of people come up to um just be warm and enjoy the gorgeous weather is it possible that we could have sort of a, a tennis resort kind of a thing going on out there and get people coming to visit and spending a week playing tennis just for fun. And, and uh, do we do that in Darwin? I, I don't know if we're doing that to the scale with which you've just described, but can we do that? I, 
I don't <laughs> see any limitations. Come on, get with it, Evan. Maybe I need to say to the Mindle Casino, hey, guys, don't send your business next door. Come all the way to Morara and let's tee something up. So I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, mm. and, and that's so prevalent with so many country clubs and resorts. You do have that hand in hand. I have another question. Can I have another one, Peter? Of course you can. Evan, can I have another? Sure. What, what, what about, we haven't talked about Boris Becker, and I did watch, I, there are a couple of, there are a couple of, um, I did watch that one. And also I wanted to, um, no, I don't want to mention that. But, um, but, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that, that he made it difficult for himself. They would say he, he was so good that then he'd get out there and he'd be, he'd be winning really handily in a match and he would just throw it out, throw it and he, he for a while. And, and, and I've watched, it seems like I see that a lot when I'm watching, you know, the, the highest levels of tennis is it, it, you know, you think, is this rigged because it's often so close? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Becker just, he, he had to make it hard for himself to, to challenge himself or something. Is that what a lot of the pros do or is Becker unusual in that way? It, I can't speak for Becker whether or not he tanked and that's tennis slang for throwing in the towel, so to speak. What I can say is that, like you alluded to, Peter, it's a mental game. And within so many matches, it's, I'll use an, any given Sunday reference, it's a game of inches, literally. And you look at it from a grassroots perspective. One of the parents, one of the fathers said to me when he first enrolled his boys into a tennis tournament and he said Evan they're calling their own lines is this normal why don't we have referees why don't we have umpires and I I said mate I hate to break it to you but that's how tennis is at a grassroots level and Mm. it is an honesty system and there are children which unfortunately (laughs) do develop a unique reputation as I'll use another tennis slang term it's called hooks where they Mm. they may make questionable line calls and hook is essentially a cheat so that's something which is unfortunate with the game but to go back to boris and to go back to these players which are grinding let's say three to five hundred in the world so it's it's a game of interest any given sunday it's a game of inches and it's it's literally so marginal and not polarizing in the slightest if your first serve percentage if you can make just a few more first serves during the big points which is why Novak Djokovic is number one in the world. If you look at the percentages, it's he's winning these big points. Maybe and it's just marginally, it could be five to seven percent better than every other player, but you transfer that objectively to what that looks like on paper. That's why he's number one or, or whatever mm-hmm. he is at the moment in the world. So it's it literally is a game of inches. It's it's a marginal, incremental percentage tennis game. Can I tell you guys a story just on Becker? I saw an interview a few months ago. I'd completely forgotten about it until you brought it up then, Liz. I saw an interview a few months ago with Andre Agassi. Agassi beat Becker at Wimbledon one year, right? And he was interviewed. This was only recently. He was interviewed about it. And Becker was on his game. He was unbeatable at the time. And he had two big serves that he used to use regularly. Nobody could pick which way he was going to go and therefore, you know, he got a whole stack of free points. And this interviewer said to him, to Agassi, how did you beat him in that game? You just seemed to be able to pick which way he was going to serve. And Agassi said, I've never told anybody this, but 
he used to stick his tongue out and I could tell which way he was going to serve based on, he used to do this big wide serve and he'd stick his tongue to that direction. And every time he did, I nailed the return because that was his big thing, right? He was a good serve, but he was a much better return. And he told Becca about it. Becca said, I never knew. I didn't know I did that until you just told me. So it's a game of inches, all right. And then it's a game of tells. And these guys obviously play each other, you know, many, many times growing up and through their senior career. But gee, when it counted, he he, uh, he got him. And that's something I coach some of our players, again, going back to a grassroots level. So I'm going to give a freebie on the house. <laughs> players, if you're learning the game and you're starting to get to become an intermediate level, don't look at the direction to where you're serving. Try to look at the centre of the service box and then go out wide or then go down the tee because that's what a lot of players do. You can actually see where they're about to serve or their body is married within a particular, it's, again, degree of inches. They turn maybe five degrees and then, you know, they're going out wide. So you really need to be that Pete Sampras, even at a beginner or intermediate level, and see if you can disguise everything and then go for that out wide or down the line and change your racket face angle at the last moment. Uh, well, like like any professional sports person um i've been watching the cricket recently and you know they talk about the bowlers coming in and ricky ponting was saying that he only used to look at the bowler's hand literally as he was doing his delivery strike whereas some other batsmen will look from the time you know the top of his mark all the way down yes he said he said i can't concentrate for that long i can only concentrate for two or three seconds at a time and that's all i needed to know what he was going to do but it's yeah, the game of inches. I think that's a, a probably that's what actually I'll tell you now. That'll be the title of this episode <laughs> because literally most a lot of sports come down to that. That's it. Well said. Yeah. yeah. Well, Evan, it's been great getting to know you and learning what you're doing at uh, Darwin International Tennis Centre, and um, I, I've, I've had a little bit of involvement, not much at all, but. I've been really pleased to see it sort of come out there at Marara because Marara really is an amazing sports hub for a town the size of Darwin. And uh, tennis was sadly missing until they built this centre. And now really it's it's state of the art and such a great centre for locals and, and interstate and, you know, touring professionals to, to come and play at. Absolutely. And, and thank you. We're so blessed to have this. And Hopefully it's going to remain the premier centre and we'll keep providing tournaments as well as grassroots tennis for everyone. It sounds great. I can't wait to come out. Thank you. Certainly. That was Evan Sanna on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again on the next episode. In the meantime, have a great week. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Peter and the Professor. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favorite podcasting platforms or head to territorystory.com.